in um, chapter 9 this morning, but I want to make a correction. Last week it was brought to my attention uh, that I made a statement last week that I said that uh, Jesus' healing of the centurions, or the leper and the centurion servant, was the first miracle in Matthew. That is incorrect. Um, the first miracles actually occur in a very generic form uh, in the chapters before, uh, in Matthew's chapter 4. Uh, give or take about verse 23 or so, where Jesus is just generically referred to as healing the sick and, and casting out demons. If I wanted to have been accurate and correct, I would have said the first specific uh, minister uh, miracle was there in, in uh, Matthew chapter 8, but I failed to be specific, and I, you know, I just, I just messed that one up. So we're going to correct that, and it's corrected. So we're on the record as being right, right? Thank you. No. If I'm if I'm wrong or if hey look I'm I'm not I'm not by any means perfect, uh, but but here's what we're gonna go. All right, we're gonna do a little bit of play acting this morning. Gary, you're gonna help me, um, and uh, and then we're gonna move from there. Matthew chapter nine says this. Verse one is actually, huh? Yes, I am. It's recording. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to get the correction on the record. Um, Matthew chapter 9, verse 1 says, Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. Case in point for how chapter and verse uh, divisions are not inspired. Okay, We thank the gentleman who painstakingly spent his entire life categorizing the Bible in chapter and verse. We are grateful because it would be very hard for us to find Scripture collectively otherwise. However... Uh, the divisions are not divine. They are merely for categorizing and helping us understand where we are in the text. That first verse belongs with that story of the demoniac, right? He got off the boat, healed the demoniac, got on the boat, and left. That is a beginning and the end of that story. Those should not be broken up. Verse 2, though it should be verse 1, says this, And they, that is the people, uh, or I'm sorry, Getting into the boat, Jesus crossed over to the sea and came to his own city. His own city is what city? Anybody want to take a guess? Galilee. All right. Galilee is, is a big community. Think of that as like Rankin and Scott County. Okay. Capernaum. All right. Why won't we say Capernaum? Okay. That's where he stayed with Peter. What would be another good guess? You'd be wrong. Capernaum's right. But what would be another good guess? Where is Jesus from? Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, right? So... If you'd have said Nazareth, I'd have said, that's a great guess. Wrong. Um, <laughs> where Jesus lived throughout his public ministry, if he wasn't on the road, his headquarters was in Capernaum, specifically in Peter's home. Now, on the screen here, I have a picture for you, uh, if you can avoid the glare. Uh, this is actually uh, very close to what Peter's house actually looked like. We have archaeological evidence uh, of the area of Capernaum. We can kind of, uh, we actually know exactly where Peter's house is. Uh, after centuries and centuries of being destroyed, Jerusalem I'm talking about, there was still a community of believers in Capernaum, and uh, there are many churches in that area. There are ruins of an ancient church on top of the ruins of Peter's home, where, as you would imagine, uh, starting a house church, why not start it at one of the actual disciples' house? It's probably where church was, air quoting, right? Um, it's where church was. And so over time, they just kind of built up walls. Now, but I want to point out, kind of see that L-shaped courtyard in the middle? Okay, that was very common. 
Um, one room would have been uh, probably the kitchen and main like living area. And then you had an area over off to the side, which was probably a bedroom. And then um, perhaps he had down here uh, his mother-in-law's living quarters. We know his mother-in-law lived with them. How? Do we know that? In Peter's home, right? Um, and then you see all of these uh, little extra buildings. Is this larger than you would have thought? Okay. This is one of the reasons why. And now this is not an uncommon house, but this is one of the reasons why I believe Peter wasn't this like poverty-stricken dude. He, look, he was a fisher, fisherman. It's like having a farmer uh, in your family. They may not be ultra-rich, but they're not hungry. You, you follow what I'm saying? Peter could go catch fish. He could, he could make a living, um, and, and so he lived there. Now, i got another picture I want to show you. Um, Y'all see that? Kind of see the disc-shaped thing in the middle? That is actually St. Peter's Church. Um, thank you to our Catholic community. They love building churches over stuff. Um, and so underneath that, if you see, it's kind of like elevated above the rest of the ruins. Y'all see that? Uh, the middle section of that church is all one big glass plate. You can look down into it and see it uh, and see the original ruins um, there. But that's, that was the site of Peter's house. Now, immediately above that, what do you see? Sea of Galilee. Now, why does that make sense? Yeah, constantly going to the sea. It makes sense that he would live by it. So you can go down in there. You can almost visualize Jesus kind of like cruising out one day on, a, on an evening cruise just to get away from people, right? I'm going to go sit in the middle of the sea. Nobody's going to bother me out there, or so he thought. Um, but he's there. Now, at the very bottom of that, do you see that kind of structure? It's, it's more than ruins, but it's not quite a complete building. Y'all see that? That is a synagogue. That is the synagogue that Jesus taught in. You see the distance between the synagogue and Peter's house? It's not very far at all. So when Jesus taught in the synagogues and went home for, uh, for his Sabbath meal uh, of lamb and euro or whatever he, whatever he ate, uh, cucumber sauce and fish, um, it was just a quick, I mean, like Meemaw lived right there, like right there. So we have that, that kind of that image. Uh, whoop, there it is. And that's... What's going on with this today? Is it working? What? No, we're not going to do it. There it is. All right, we're going to leave that up. Come back to verse 2. They brought to Jesus, that is, people. Uh, these indiv this individual had a couple friends. A paralytic lying on a bed. Now, this could have been a wooden framed bed. Think like a pallet with four wooden things they had tied uh, bed sheets to or, or uh, material to and brought him on a wooden stretcher kind of thing, or it could literally have meant they each grabbed a corner of his bed sheets and they brought him to Jesus. Um, and seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Let's pause there. What's a one giant piece of this story that we find in Mark and Luke that's missing? The whole pulling back of the roof, right? Now, why do you think it's not, not included here in Matthew? Look down at chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from Peter's house, he saw a man called, what's your Bible say? Sitting in the tax collector's booth, and Jesus said to him, follow me, and Matthew got up and followed him. 
He wasn't there. It wasn't something that was extraordinary to him. That's my opinion. He may have been there. I bet he wasn't. Up until this point, the miracles that he's recording lack a lot of depth and detail because he's retelling a story that he's been told, right? He believes them. They're emphatically true, but he doesn't have all the details included because he didn't see it, and he didn't see it all. Now, me, uh, keep in mind, though, uh, over in the Gospel of Mark, who, by the way, uh, is writing the words of Peter, it could be essentially called the Gospel of Peter into the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark includes lots of details. Why? Because it was his roof that was getting torn up, right? Now, imagine in this setting here, right? Let's just imagine I'll play the part of Jesus. And, uh, and you all are listening to the sermons and the lessons that I'm teaching you. Would it be obvious if someone began to pull back the ceiling above us? What would happen? Give me, try to describe the scene. All right, debris, dirt, dust, what else? It's loud. It is loud. It's distracting, right? Try preaching over a baby crying. That's one thing. Try preaching over that. So, so as Jesus is preaching and teaching that day, what does he probably do? Yeah, let's hit the pause button on this, guys. Let's, uh, let's figure out what's going on. All right. Okay. All right. Hey, Tom. You know how you doing? All right. Gary, would you grab a chair? All right. We're going to pretend this is your bed, and, and your friends have – you have no friends here today. Uh, but if you'll just kind of sit right here. All right. Just, you, can, you can face them. That's fine. Uh, all right, so Gary's going to be the paralytic. All right, Gary's paralyzed. <laughs> yeah, well, look, you carried your own bed. All right, and so Gary is here. Uh, thank you, Gary, for playing the part uh, today. Um, and, and so Gary is laying there, and, and you, do y'all feel the awkwardness here? Are y'all looking at Gary? Yeah, do y'all feel the awkwardness? All right, this is very much what's happening here in this, in this, in this house, right? Uh, they've pulled back all the mud and the sticks, and there's garbage and debris everywhere. Peter's wife's going to be so angry when she finds out what they did to her roof and floor. And Gary's sitting here paralyzed. Now, he had some friends bring him today. Now, why did they have to go to the roof? Couldn't get to Jesus because it's crowded. So that tells us that there is a whole bunch of people to the point where they, they had enough room to get up uh, to the top, but not into the room with Jesus. So they take the time, they peel it back. I'm, I'm thinking this took, uh, if, if not uh, half an hour, at least several minutes, right, to pull back and deal with, with the situation at hand. Yeah, well, you drag him up there. Same way you drag him down a hole, right? You, uh, there's, it's weird, all right? So there's been awkwardness happening. Uh, people are like, man, why are you getting in my way? Right, I've been sitting here. Gary, you still feel awkward? Okay, good. All right. All right. All right. So they they lower uh, they lower him down in front of Jesus, and Jesus uh, looks at him, has compassion, has pity. Uh, and again, I think Matthew is relating the story he's heard, not the story he's seen. Okay. Um, and he says to Gary, "Hey, take courage, son. Your sins are forgiven." And some of the scribes said to themselves, "This fellow, referring to Jesus." blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, turns to them and says, right, our Pharisees are sitting off to this side of the room. We'll look at you two today. Uh, Thank you for playing the part of the scribes. (laughs) Why are you thinking evil thoughts in your hearts? What is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. All right. 
So we're still experiencing this awkwardness with Gary here, right? What is easier for me to say, get up and walk, or Gary, your sins are forgiven? What's easier to prove? It's easier to prove that? This man's been paralyzed, okay? He obviously has a, he's a good man because he has friends enough that even as a paralytic, they have thought enough of him to bring him. Gary's a good man. At some point, he wasn't paralyzed. He is a good man who has good friends who have dedicated their lives to trying to get him the last resort help he can get. What's easier to prove, internal heart conditions or external walking and talking for a paralyzed man? Which is easier? No. Yeah. How do I prove his sins are forgiven? You can't. How do I prove he's been healed? He's got to get up and walk. All right. So do you see why Jesus has put himself into this kind of binary situation? And he looks around, he looks past Gary, and he goes, what do you think is easier? For me to say to this man who you know, who can't walk, hasn't been able to walk for some time, what's easier? For me to change his entire physical health right in front of you, or just to say, bless your heart, your sins are forgiven. Well, the easier task is just to say your sins are forgiven. Because that's not, you can't prove that very easily. The harder thing is to actually heal him. All right? Now, then he says this in verse, verse 5, or verse 6. But so that you may know that the Son of Man, we're going to deal with that in a minute, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he, Jesus, says to Gary, the paralytic, get up. Three, three commands. Get up, pick up, go home. All right, so Gary, we're going to pantomime. Get up, pick up, and, and then go back to your seat. Thank you. All right, now I wanted to kind of see, I wanted you to kind of feel a little bit of that awkwardness, all right, just a little touch of it, of just what was happening in that very confined space, which probably included about five times as many people in a room this size as we have this morning. Right? Tight, tight spaces. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, we saved you a seat wherever you want. You describe some Pharisees. Uh huh. Uh huh. Over here. All right. So we've just healed Gary. He was paralyzed. Uh, and and Gary's, Gary's well now. Verse 7 says the man got up and the man went home. Now imagine that, that home coming that particular day because they. If he was married, his wife was absolutely exhausted, right? If he wasn't married, he was living with friends or his parents, which means that they were exhausted. And he goes home that day quite fundamentally different than how he arrived, uh, or that how he arrived home a lot different than he left, okay? Now, we're not told the rest of that story. Matthew just makes it real succinct, real tight, Matthew chapter 9. He makes it a real, real tight story. He leaves out all the extra details, in part, I think, because he is recounting stories he's been told and retold, uh, not necessarily that he has seen right off the bat. Verse 9. Now, as Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew. Uh, in, other, uh, in Mark Luke, he is called Levi. He had two names, right? Matthew was probably uh, his Roman name. Levi was probably his Jewish name. Or it could have been both of his Jewish names. Maybe they were good southern boys, you know, 
like John Todd or, or, or something like that, you know? Which one of y'all kids, how many of y'all have kids that have two names? We have a Carolyn Grace. Who else has two names? No, y'all didn't give it. No, what do you call them? What do you call them? Just call them the one name? We just, we have just downgraded to just letters. Like B and C, G and J. Like we just, and even that. It just depends on the day? Yeah. Yeah, what you're yelling up the stairs. Yeah. Yeah. B, get your clothes on. Does not have the same right. Benjamin! You know, like, so you got to resonate. Um, nevertheless, he looks at, at Matthew and he says, follow me. Now, again, this is not some mystical, like, ooh, you just saw something in Jesus's eyes that day and knew this is what he needed. How far does, does he have to go down to go down to the shore? Remember we showed that picture? Let me see if I can pull it up again. All right. How far does Peter live from the seashore? All right, so imagine somewhere, probably right out there to the top right corner where the water meets the land, is a dock, okay? Now, where there's a dock, you got to put your boat in. And where you put your boat in, that's where the tax collecting booth is, right? Uh, please exit through the gift shop. That's, that's kind of the, the, the mindset. So if you went fishing and you brought in your catch, you would be taxed on whatever revenue or income. And so Matthew, honestly if that's where the dock was, just was right there. If that's the case, is there any possibility Matthew didn't already know who Jesus was? None whatsoever. As a matter of fact, if they lived that close, he heard the crowd when the man was healed as a paralyzed man. They were like, whoa. He had heard Jesus preach off of these same waters. He had heard Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount. I guarantee it. Um, he was not traveling with Jesus yet. He was still on the fence of what he was supposed to do. And Jesus walks up to him one day and says, Hey, Matthew, you're with me. Now let's talk about Matthew in terms of who he is. Uh, Matthew is a, by profession, a, a tax collector, which means that he is paid by the Fed. He is a Roman federal technician, right? Um, now the one thing that the Jews absolutely hate the most is... A Roman, well, they're dogs, they even call them that, right? They're dogs. What's worse than a Roman? A traitor, a collaborator. Not just someone who will work in the midst of Romans, but work right for them. You traitor. So how did they feel, generally speaking, the Jewish population feel about Matthew? You look like us, but you ain't one of us. You turncoat, you absolute traitor. And Jesus, knowing all that about Matthew, looks at Matthew and goes, hey, will you follow me? How do you think that made Peter feel? Super Jew. Yeah, like what's going on here? Hey, hey. All right. Um, absolutely broke the norm. Uh, look over, we'll, we won't get there this morning, but look over at chapter 10, verse 4. This is the back, the back end of the list of the 12 disciples that Jesus picked. Chapter 4, 10, 10 verse 4 says, Simon the, what's your word? Zealot. The zealot and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus. He goes ahead and leads with that. Like, we hate that guy. I mean, Jesus loves him. We hate him. Uh, we'll have to ask forgiveness later. A zealot, um, and likely Judas is a zealot too. The, the word Iscariot is a mystery to us. Uh, no one knows the etymology of that name, but Iscariot 
has the remnants of another word that the Hebrews used called the Sakari, or more plainly, the dagger men. These men loved to kill Romans for sport. Uh, uh, the, 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 especially the Sakari, the, the dagger men, would at night dress up as women of the night, of easy virtue. Uh, they would put on all their coverings, and they would go stand outside of the bars and the taverns that the Roman soldiers liked to frequent. And then when they'd kind of stumble out there in the night a little intoxicated, the Sakari would ease up beside those Roman soldiers and pull out a dagger six to eight inches long and jab it up in the rib of the Romans. Because that was, by the way, that was one of the only weaknesses in the in the, the armor of the soldiers. You had to get up close to get them. And they'd get right up in their rib and they would hit them with it and they would pull that knife out and then they would kind of, uh, you know, what's that new TikTok trend? You know, that, that walking thing they're doing. They would just kind of, prance off into the night, you know, um, while the Roman soldier lay bleeding in the street. Yeah, that one. Yeah. Y'all knew it. Y'all knew it. Don't judge me. Um, like, no, Pastor, no, we don't. We're good Christian people. We don't do. Y'all knew. All y'all knew. Don't even act like you don't. All right. So among the group that Jesus is calling to himself, you have a Roman collaborator and people on the other end of the spectrum that are more than happy to murder you where you stand because you're, you're a Roman. What is Jesus doing? He's calling people to himself, not to each other first. That's important because I bet you if I met some of y'all out in the streets, we probably wouldn't get along very well. Right? The things I like to do and things I like to, 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 to participate in may not be your cup of tea, okay? and vice versa. God never calls us to be in community with each other alone. He calls us to him first, and then we figure out the rest. All right, Very important detail, verse 10. And it happened as Jesus was reclining at the table. That would be, uh, Pastor kind of addressed this a couple weeks ago in one of his sermons. Uh, the tables would be about half the size of what these little black Tables are in front of us here, about half the size there, uh, down to the ground. And you would recline on your left elbow with kind of your feet behind you, and then you would eat with your right hand. This was the customary. It, it still is customary in Middle East cultures to this day. Uh, you have to ask for fork and knife in certain restaurants because it's not uncommon just to reach up and just eat with your with your right hand. Okay? Um, so they were, they were reclining there. Jesus is eating with them. This is one of the most intimate things you can do with people. Uh, eating with someone is a de facto f um, proof that you are friends, or at least friendly. No one eats with their enemies, okay? Uh, so if you're having a hard time with someone, if you're having a hard time breaking, have lunch with them. If you're trying to get over something, go out to dinner with them and eat with them, it is a natural breaking down of barriers, okay? Uh, anyway, it is what it is. So there is Jesus, and there were many, many tax collectors and sinners. Now, that's a generic term for, you know, people who weren't Orthodox Jews. They didn't keep all the, the, the Torah as the good scribes and Pharisees did. Uh, they were kind of on the, the left side of, of the field, so to speak. They weren't quite living the way the Jews thought they should. And so tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus is there in their midst. Now, I think we're going to meet him later on. But there's a cat daddy named Zacchaeus who is a chief tax collector. 
Um, I think the reason why he's included in that story is because he was Matthew's boss. We'll talk more about that later. Um, but Jesus is there with all these tax collectors. Matthew has some influence. Now, he may be not be super influential, but among his community of tax collectors, he's like, hey, um, uh, you guys carry a lot of shame. You tax collectors, you are Roman collaborators. You, you don't get invited to the family picnics anymore. You carry a lot of burden. There's a guy who's taking the shame away. Come meet him. And they're like, we're in. We're in. And, uh, and so, verse 11, the Pharisees saw this, and they said to Jesus' disciples, um, again, all 12 haven't coalesced yet, uh, but the ones that are there, they ask, why is your teacher, the word literally is, why is your rabbi eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus overheard this. Right, this is great. I love it. He's like, oh, hey, won't you shut up? I don't know if Jesus said that. Um, he says, uh, when Jesus heard this, he spoke up and said this. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Now, this is twofold. Uh, this is both a sermon of offering to those who need it, and it is an absolute backhanded slap to the self-righteous. Okay? Hey, are you broke? Jesus is for you. I, when, I, when people come to me and they say, hey, how do I start reading the Bible? Or I'm kind of off track spiritually. How do I, how do I get back on track? I, I, I'm not a, a rigid, you know, like do these things. Here's what I tell people to do. Start reading, and I'll give them a t- particular book. Typically it's, it's the book of Mark. Uh, or the book of First or Second Peter. Those are real good, not task-oriented, but they're really good like frames of thinking. And, uh, and I say start your, your prayer, your, uh, your Bible reading this way. God, show me what you want to show me and fix what's broken within me. That's simple. That's simple. Stupid simple. If you pray that prayer and you are honestly asking God for the help you need, he will show you what's wrong with you, he will show you what he wants to show you, and he'll fix whatever's broken within you. Whatever trauma or whatever you have in your background, God will make a way. All right? Now, at any rate, he says, I didn't come for the, for the healthy ones. They didn't call the doctor uh, for healthy people, the, the sick people. He, he was basically kind of referring back to his Sermon on the Mount. He said, you know, remember, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who mourn. He's going back to that. It's like, you don't need me because you don't think you need me. You think you're fixed. If you are fixed, if you come to Jesus fixed, you'll never need anything he has to offer. That's why vulnerability in your spiritual life is so very important, right? Arrogance has no place in the church. Does it exist? Do this. It absolutely does. Arrogance should not exist in the church. It does. It shouldn't. But the minute that you can be vulnerable is the minute you are recognizing, hey, I am I'm sick and I need a help. I need a physician. Verse 14. Now the disciples of John, now who's John? Who's we talking, who are we talking about? Not John the disciple. John the baptizer, right? Uh, so the disciples of John the baptizer came to Jesus and asked, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now I think this was a right-hearted question. The other accusation in the previous verses was wrong-hearted, 
but these were correctly thought of and processed. They were wondering why they had to fast, but it seems like the disciples of Jesus, the right guy to be following at that time, weren't fasting. Now, in the Jewish law, uh, over the Old Testament, there was a day of fasting. But like most religious people do, we like to say if it's good once, it's even better twice and even more better a hundred times. All right? So they set up this routine practice of fasting all of the time. Some of them would fast uh, every week, like once a week. They would fast a whole day. And then Jesus addressed them on the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that? He says, when you fast... Uh, don't look, go out looking disheveled and oh, oh, so weak. Um, it's like, no, oil your hair. That would be the modern day equivalent. Wash your hair. Uh, I have teenage boys. Wash your hair with soap and water and uh, look presentable to society and don't worry about it. Your, your obligation is to the Lord. And so Jesus is being asked this question How come the Pharisees fast? And, but who is coming to ask this question? It's the disciples of John the baptizer, people who are wanting to get it right. They're like, we don't understand. We don't like them. Nobody likes those Pharisees, right? Actually, everybody liked the Pharisees. He says, but the, 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 relig the religious people do it, and we're doing it. How come your disciples aren't doing it? And Jesus responds this way in verse 15. The attendants of, a, of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Can they? No. Put yourself in the picture uh, of uh, those of you who have children, okay? Grow, grow, grow them up. You got two little baby girls, right? Grow them up real quick, and on the day of their wedding, which for some of y'all is a terrifying concept, okay? <laughs> and on the day of their wedding, do you want them to be sad? No. Do you want them to be harmed or hurt in any way? On any day, you want to set that apart, and you want to put it on a shelf and say, this is a special day. As much as we can humanly control it, this is going to be a good and right day. And Jesus is saying, hey, look, something special is in me. I am, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. My groomsmen cannot act like they're a funeral, at a funeral when they're at the wedding. right? And as long as it's that day, my day, they are going to be not fasting. Now, he's not saying they'll never fast because they actually do. Uh, there's future uh, scriptures where they do. But when they're there, like, we're not doing any of this sad stuff. Okay? So he's answering that question for them. Something greater than John, something greater than the law has arrived, and it's a day for celebration. I am the cause of that celebration. Uh, the tenants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. How many seamstresses in here? That's kind of a dying art. My mom uh, is, is somewhat of a seamstress. She's got like the sergers and the sewing machine. She's got a, a special shed in the backyard that's her sewing room. She used to have a sewing room. Now she has a sewing, sewing shack. Sewing shack? Yes. That's, that's what I call it. A she shed. She doesn't call it that, uh, and that's weird. Um, maybe she should. She should. She shed. Um, by Galilee. Um, if you take an old shirt and you put a new patch on it, and then you wash it, what happens to the new cloth? Yeah, it, it shrinks up and the, the seams will tear. Okay? 
he goes on for this. This this make this passage makes Baptist very uncomfortable. Old school Baptist doesn't make most of us uncomfortable. But some old school Baptists they don't like this next one. Um, no one puts new wine. Whoa! You mean grape juice? Uh, no. Uh, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Now, what's a wineskin? Let's talk about that. What's a wineskin? What's it made of? Animal hide, right? So they would tan the hide, and it was it was soft and supple, and they would sew it up to it was it was you know tight for the liquid, and and they would sew it up, and they would put wine in it. Now, what happens? Those of you who would admit to having seen a bottle of wine before in your life. What happens naturally to, to wine as it is aging? It gives off, off gas, right? And what happens? It expands. So you need that new wineskin, that new suppleness to expand with it. Okay? All right? But if we put new wine into old wineskin, what's that old wineskin indicate? It's kind of, yeah, yeah. So it can't expand anymore. It's dried out. What's going to happen? You're going to burst the wineskin, and you're going to lose both the container and, and the wine. Okay? So he's saying people don't do these things, but they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. What he's saying is I am giving you something new and different. You can't slap the old onto the new. You can't take what you've been doing and then take what I'm giving you and just try to match it up and it's going to fit perfectly. I am giving you a new concept to live with. I am giving you grace over law. I'm giving you help over just rules. Okay? I'm taking away shame and sin. I'm not just giving you a code, a, a ladder to live by to get to heaven. And saying so if you try to match the two, you're going to lose both. You're going to have to let go of one and grab hold of the new. Now, while he was saying these things, a synagogue official came and bowed down before Jesus and said, My daughter has just died. Come and lay your hands on her, uh, and she will live. Now, again, this is a, a weird passage because of the other accounts. She has not died yet. She's near death. That's why, that's why the synagogue official comes running up. Uh, we talked a couple of weeks ago about what it takes to build a synagogue. All right? Uh, it takes 10 men to start a synagogue. And then they kind of elect one of those 10 men. We're going to elect you. You look, you look sharp and dapper. Uh, we're going to elect you, uh, and you're going to be the chief official. We're going to pay you a stipend. Now, keep in mind, we're, we're over here in Capernaum, right? It's not a huge – I mean, this is probably a, a part-time gig for you, right? But you want to make sure that – Come Sabbath, the chairs are set out, and the donuts are set off to the side, and the coffee's made, and the, the, the grass is cut, and, and make sure that we got a rabbi to cover for Rabbi Joe who's taking vacation. Make, make sure the other rabbi can come in. And so you're kind of in charge of that, um, of, of caretaking, right? Um, and he says, my daughter's died. Come and lay hands on her, and she will live. And Jesus got up and began to follow him, and so did Jesus' disciples. Now, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. Uh, a couple things we got to talk about here. Matthew, again, leaves out a ton of detail. Um, but this woman has had an issue of, of bleeding for 12 years. Um, this meant uh, a lot of things medically, but she would have been absolutely exhausted. I know we've got some women in here who 
you know, you, you've got a lived experience, right? I mean, we're going to talk about it, but you've got lived experience where there's anemia that sets in, constant fatigue, constant exhaustion, uh, everything, every small task becomes a big task, and you've got no energy. And this woman has been enduring this for 12 years. This has made her unclean ceremonially for 12 years. This has removed her from fellowship at the synagogue for 12 years. She cannot share a public space for 12 years. She can't sit in that chair because as soon as she sits in that chair, it becomes an unclean chair, and no men can sit in it, okay? Uh, no one talks to her. No one looks at her. No one deals with her, and for 12 years. Interesting enough, Mark uh, tells this story. It said that she had spent all of her money on doctors, and none could make her well. Uh, Luke, who records this story, who is a doctor, said she spent all of her money and nobody could help her. Uh, I think that was an interesting perspective. The guy who's not a doctor is like, what a quack. Uh, the guy who was a doctor is like, like, we tried. We tried, bro. Matthew glosses over all of that and gets right to the point and said that she reached over and she touched the fringe of his cloak. That's My translation says fringe. Yours may says hem. The what? Edge. The edge. On the bottom of men, Jewish men's inner garment is a prayer fringe. It is a sign and symbol that they're constantly thinking about God, God's presence. It's a fringe. It's a tassel, if you will, all along the edge of the robe. And so she reaches down and she grabs the symbol of God's eternal presence with man. I think that's an interesting uh, tie-in there. She reaches out and grabs the fringe. Now, we're told the crowd is big. She just made a whole bunch of people unclean, and she just had to get to Jesus. And so she was saying to herself, if I only touch Jesus' garments, I will get well. Verse 22, and Jesus turning and seeing her says, daughter, take courage. Interesting. Go back to verse 2 of chapter 9. What did he say to the, to the young man who was paralyzed? He says, son. He's bringing them into the family concept. Son, daughter. He's not woman, man. No, son, daughter, brother, sister. He's creating a community uh, concept here. He says, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. And then Matthew just drop kicks her into history. Like, <laughs> next, right? He's moving very quickly. Verse 23, Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder. He said, leave, for the girl has not died but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. If there's anything the ancients knew is when they saw something dead. Okay? Uh, perhaps she had been dead for so long um, that perhaps some rigor had set in. We don't know how they knew, but they were confident. They were confident enough that she had died, that there was already a crowd bringing fried chicken and mashed potatoes in to care for the family, right? They had already set up the, the, the party. Now, pay attention. Jesus is still in Capernaum, I believe, when this is happening. He's moving through the streets. This would have happened uh, wherever it happened, it wouldn't have taken just a tremendous amount of time to get Jesus from there to, to this woman's house. Uh, but it took several minutes for this thing to transpire. Uh, when the crowd had been sent out, Jesus entered, in verse 25, and took the girl by the hand, and the girl got up. Now, this is the first time in Matthew that someone has been raised from the dead. This is huge. Okay, 
But Jesus wants to keep this under wraps. This is why he sent everybody out. Okay? It's one thing to heal something. It's one thing to reverse bad health. It's one thing to reverse an injury. It's an altogether thing to reverse death. And Jesus is like, all right, I know what I can do. I know what I'm capable of. I control the power of life in my hand. Uh, but you, you don't need to see that right now. I don't need to get the, the word I need to get out that I'm over this whole life and death thing. Jesus is very strategic in the way he approaches, um, uh, the way he approaches uh, this miracle ministry. Jesus went on from there, and there were two blind men following, crying out, Have mercy on me, or have mercy on us, son of David. Matthew does this again. In the last chapter, he mentioned two demoniacs, where Mark and Luke mentioned one demoniac had legion in them. In the Mark and Luke stories, there's only one blind beggar. In Matthew, there's two. Uh, I find it interesting that there, and I, I don't know why yet. I, I'm just kind of seeing this for the first time in my Bible study. Uh, life. Uh, Matthew seems to duplicate things. Um, I, I think I've got a working theory, but I'm not ready to release it yet. Um, but where every other gospel says there was one, Matthew says there was two. Uh, even to the point where, y'all recall when Jesus came in on his triumphal entry? All right. What did he ride in on? A donkey. Matthew actually records two donkeys. I'll let you fast forward into, the, into Matthew. It's weird. There's two. Again, I got a working theory. We'll release that uh, when that when that episode is close. Um, anyway, they said, "Have mercy on us." When Jesus entered the house, the blind men came to Jesus, and Jesus said to them, "Do you believe that I am able to do this?" And they said emphatically, "Yes, sir. Uh, yes, Lord is what you probably have, but sir is the connotation there." He touched their eyes, saying, "It shall be done to you according to your faith." And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about this. How has Jesus been healing people before? Now, he healed the, healed the, the dead girl by picking her up by the hand, right? But up until this point, how has Jesus been healing people? Either they touched him or Jesus spoke the word. Why are we transitioning here? Why does Matthew feel it's important to say that he touched them? I think so. I think so. He said, meeting them where they are. There are some of you that if, if, if you called me and said, hey, will you pray for me? You could hang up and, and I not pray for you in that moment. And you, Caleb's going to pray for me. Or you call me and go, can you pray for me right now? And boom, we're in prayer right over the phone. And there are some of you that would not be able to receive that unless I drove over to your house and stood in your presence and held your hand and prayed for you. Is it one and the same? Yes. Yes. God's presence is there. But each individual at different points in their life need different things. Sometimes you need a real hug. Right? Sometimes you need someone to walk up behind you and put their hand on your back and say, I'm with you. And sometimes you don't need that. Sometimes just knowing someone is there verbally for you. Whatever these men uh, were dealing with, in that moment, I think Jesus knew they needed something. Besides, they were blind. Guess what they couldn't do? They couldn't see. And so what was the first thing they saw? He touched their eyes. What's the first thing they saw when he pulls his hands down? The eyes of the Savior. I think that's a cool gift. 
don't you? Right? That's pretty cool. Uh, so God gives them a gift in Christ here. And then he warns them, see that no, <laughs> see that no one knows about this. Okay, let's talk about this in practicality. Oh, you know, Uncle Carl, he's been blind forever, right? And you've been leading him around at Thanksgiving because he's blind. You love Uncle Carl. He's a sweet guy. And then he comes to Thanksgiving one year. He's like, I'm all better now. Well, what happened? <laughs> really? No. I mean, we Facebook our, we Facebooked our Easter outfits on the front porch this morning just because we got the kids dressed up, right? <laughs> this guy's not, not going to tell, all right? But again, this reemphasizes Jesus isn't in this world at this time in Matthew to be a healer of sickness. He is there to be a savior of souls. He cannot be distracted constantly by dealing with the small, I say small, you know, the, the bits and pieces of natural life, he's dealing with eternal issues. But, but Jesus is so moved by compassion all of the time. He is constantly stopping, slowing, healing, helping, and then moving on. And don't tell anybody. Okay. Uh, verse 31, but they went out and spread the news about him throughout all the land. <laughs> all right. Uh, verse 32, as they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to Jesus. And after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke. Now, what do you think he said? <laughs> I don't know. I bet it was good, though. Um, uh, and the crowds were amazed, and they were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. This is unprecedented. But the Pharisees were saying he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. This is such... They were so broken spiritually... They were so blinded by their own bias, they refused to believe the very thing they were seeing. It didn't fit their narrative, so they had to reject it out of hand. I want, I want, to, I want to guard you as I would warn against myself, guard against this own, in my own life. Just because something doesn't fit neatly into your theological uh, boxes, don't deny it outright. Now, the minute they get off of the concepts of Jesus and who, the God we serve, hey, start backing away from it. But there have been some pretty strange, uh, I'll say, teachers that I've had in my life, especially as of late, that when I first were introduced to the writings of them, I was like, well, this is weird. But as I began to study and see how they were seeing Scripture and, in, and seeing how all the whole of human history was folding together, I'm telling you what, if I sat down and told you what I believed about some stuff at 42, You'd be like, mm, that's some weird stuff. You didn't learn that in Sunday school. You're right, I didn't. But there's some weird stuff I believe, uh, but it's completely biblical. I think I can show it to you, right? <laughs> so it's some really neat concepts. These people were so bent on the way things had to be done, they had no room for the supernatural. Don't let that be you and I in our, in our life. Does that make sense? Uh, last little bit. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages important concept here, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the good news. You have the word gospel, but it's literally the two words, good news of the kingdom. And only after that, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Jesus was there to teach the scripture rightly and to proclaim the good news of this new kind of kingdom <coughs> that he's instituting. And as a result of that, he would do healing ministries uh, to amplify the message 
but the message is what he was driving at. Seeing the people, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech, beg, plead the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. This is, this is the whole point of this last two verses here. Quit acting like it's the preacher's job to do the work of the church. One of the problems with the American church today, personal opinion based on true fact, uh, one of the biggest problems with the American church today is we are so preacher-centric that we will invite people to our church because of the preacher. you got to come hear our preacher, which is fine. Uh, I don't like bad preaching. Neither do you, right? I don't like bad teaching. Neither do you. But the point of the church is to be community. The community is what takes care of each other. The community is what goes on generation after generation after generation. Long after a preacher or a pastor has faded into oblivion, and I'm going to tell you something. I got firsthand experience. I spent 12 years at a church up in the Mississippi Delta. I was twice over the longest serving pastor they'd ever had. Twice over. I've been gone for three and a half years. One of my t church members texted me this morning. Last year it was a dozen. The first year I was gone, everybody, everybody one person. And next year he probably won't remember. Twelve years of my life faded into oblivion in three. In a community I gave my life. Why? Because the church isn't about the preacher in the pulpit. The church is about the gospel of Jesus Christ that goes on from generation to generation. And long after you've been painted up like a clown and put into a box, the church of Christ will stand. And that's what Jesus was telling his disciples. Go pray to God that we can get the workers to go gather the harvest. All right, let me hit pause.